Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody comes back, don't they? Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked drawer today, didn't you? Ringing the Changes by Robert Aikman. He had never been among those many who deeply dislike church bells, but the ringing that evening at Hollyhaven changed his view. Bells could certainly get on one's nerves, he felt, although he'd only just arrived in town. He had been too well aware of the perils attendant upon marrying a girl twenty-four years younger than himself, and to add to them by a conventional honeymoon. The strange force of Fryn's love had borne both of them away from their previous selves. In him, a formerly haphazard and easy-going approach to life had been replaced by much deeper planning to wall in happiness. And she, though once thought cold and choosy, would now agree to anything as long as she was with him. He had said that if they were to marry in June, it would be at the cost of not being able to honeymoon until October. Had they been courting longer, he had explained, gravely smiling, special arrangements could have been made. But as it was, business claimed him. This indeed was true, because his business position was less influential than he had led Fryn to believe. Finally, it would have been impossible for them to have courted longer, because they had courted from the day they met, which was less than six weeks before the day they married. A village, he had quoted as they entered the branch line train at the junction, itself sufficiently remote, from which, it was said, persons of sufficient longevity might hope to reach Liverpool Street. By now he was able to make jokes about age, although perhaps he did so rather too often. Who said that? Bertrand Russell. She had looked at him with her big eyes in her tiny face. Really? He had smiled confirmation. I'm not arguing. She had still been looking at him. The romantic gaslight in the charming period compartment had left him uncertain whether she was smiling back or not. He had given himself the benefit of the doubt and kissed her. The guard had blown his whistle and they had rumbled out into the darkness. The branch line swung so sharply away from the main line that Fryn had almost been toppled from her seat. Why do we go so slowly when it's so flat? because the engineer laid the line up and down the hills and valleys such as they are, instead of cutting through and embanking over them. He liked being able to inform her. How do you know, Gerald? You said you hadn't been to Hollyhaven before. It applies to most of the railways in East Anglia. So that even though it's flatter, it's slower. Time matters less. I should have hated going to a place where time mattered, or that you'd been to before. He'd have had nothing to remember me by. He hadn't been quite sure that her words exactly expressed her thoughts, but the thought had lightened his heart. Hollyhaven Station could hardly have been built in the days of the town's magnificence, for they were in the Middle Ages, but it still implied grander functions than came its way now. The platforms were long enough for visiting London expresses, which had since gone elsewhere and the architecture of the waiting-rooms would have been not insufficient for occasional use by foreign royalty. Oil lamps on perches like those occupied by Macaws lightened the uniformed staff, who numbered two, and together with every native of Hollyhaven looked like storm-habituated mariners. 
The station master and porter, as Gerald took them to be, watched him approach down the platform with a heavy suitcase in each hand and Fryn walking deliciously by his side. He saw one of them address a remark to the other, but neither offered to help. Gerald had to put down the cases in order to give up their tickets. The other passengers had already disappeared. Where's the bell? Gerald had found the hotel in a reference book. It was the only one allotted to Hollyhaven. But as Gerald spoke, and before the ticket collector could answer, the sudden deep note of an actual bell rang through the darkness. Fryn caught hold of Gerald's sleeve. Ignoring Gerald, the stationmaster, if such he was, turned to his colleague. They're starting early? Every reason to be in good time, said the other man. The stationmaster nodded and put Gerald's tickets indifferently in his jacket pocket. Can you please tell me how I get to the Bell Hotel? The stationmaster's attention returned to him. Have you a room booked? Uh, certainly. Tonight? The stationmaster looked inappropriately suspicious. Of course. Again, the stationmaster looked at the other man. It's them Pascos. Yes, said Gerald. Th that's the name, Pasco. We don't use the bell, explained the stationmaster. But you'll find it in Rack Street. He gesticulated vaguely and unhelpfully. Straight ahead, down Station Road, then down Rack Street. Can't miss it. Thank you. As soon as they entered the town, the big bell began to boom regularly. What narrow street, said Fryn. Uh, they follow the lines of the medieval city. Before the river silted up, Hollyhaven was one of the most important seaports in Great Britain. Where's everybody got to? Although it was only six o'clock, the place certainly seemed deserted. Where's the hotel got to? rejoined Gerald. Poor Gerald, let me help. She laid her hand beside his on the handle of the suitcase nearest to her, but as she was about fifteen inches shorter than he, she could be of little assistance. They must already have gone more than a quarter of a mile. Do you think we're on the right street? Most unlikely, I should say, but there's no one to ask. It must be early closing day. The single deep notes of the bell were now coming more frequently. Why are they ringing that bell? Is it a funeral? A bit late for a funeral. She looked at him a little anxiously. Anyway, it's not cold. Considering we're on the east coast, it's quite astonishingly warm. Not that I care. I hope that bell isn't going to ring all night. She pulled on the suitcase. His arms were in any case almost parting from his body. Look, we've passed it. They stopped and he looked back. How could we have done that? Well, we have. She was right. He could see a big ornamental bell hanging from a bracket attached to a house about a hundred yards behind them. They retraced their steps and entered the hotel. A woman dressed in a navy blue coat and skirt with a good figure but dyed red hair and a face ridged with makeup advanced upon them. Mr. and Mrs. Banstead, I'm Hilda Pascoe. Don, my husband isn't very well. Gerald felt full of doubts. His arrangements were not going as they should. Never rely on guidebook recommendations. The trouble lay partly in Fryn's insistence that they go somewhere he did not know. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that, he said. You know what men are like when they're ill, Mrs. Pascoe spoke understandingly to Fryn. Impossible, said Fryn, or oh, very difficult. Talk about woman in our hours of ease. Yes, said Fryn, what's the trouble? 
It's always been the same trouble with Don, said Mrs. Pascoe, then checked herself. It's his stomach, she said. Ever since he was a kid, Don's had trouble with the lining of his stomach. Gerald interrupted. I wonder if we could see our rooms. So sorry, said Mrs. Pascoe. Will you register first? She produced a battered volume bound in peeling imitation leather. Just the name and address. She spoke as if Gerald might contribute a resume of his life. It was the first time he and Fryn had ever registered in a hotel, but his confidence in the place was not increased by the long period which had passed since the registration above. We're always quiet in October, remarked Mrs. Pascoe, her eyes upon him. Gerald noticed that her eyes were slightly bloodshot, except sometimes for the bars, of course. We wanted to come out of season, said Fryn, soothingly. Quite, said Mrs. Pascoe. Are we alone in the house? inquired Gerald. After all, the woman was probably doing her best. Except for Commandant Shotcroft. You won't mind him, will you? He's a regular... I'm sure we shan't, said Fryn. People say the house wouldn't be the same without Commandant Shotcroft. I see. What's that bell? asked Gerald. Apart from anything else, it really was much too near. Mrs. Pascoe looked away. He thought she looked shifty under her entrenched makeup, but she only said, practice. Do you mean there'll be more of them later? She nodded. But never mind, she said encouragingly. Let me show you to your room. Sorry there's no porter. Before they had reached the bedroom, the whole peal had commenced. Is this the quietest room you have? inquired Gerald. What about the other side of the house? This is the other side of the house. St. Guthlux is over there, she pointed out through the bedroom door. Darling, said Fryn, her hand on Gerald's arm, they'll soon stop. They're only practising. Mrs. Pascoe said nothing. Her expression indicated that she was one of those people whose friendliness has a precise and never exceeded limit. If you don't mind, said Gerald to Fryn, hesitating. They have ways of their own in Hollyhaven, said Mrs. Pascoe. Her undertone of militancy implied, among other things, that if Gerald and Fryn chose to leave, they were at liberty to do so. Gerald did not care for that either. Her attitude would have been different, he felt, had there been anywhere else for them to go. The bells were making him touchy and irritable. It's a very pretty room, said Fryn. I adore for posters. Thank you, said Gerald to Mrs. Pascoe. What time's dinner? Seven-thirty. You've time for a drink in the bar first. She went. We certainly have, said Gerald, when the door was shut. It's only just six. Actually, said Fryn, who was standing by the window looking down into the street, I like church bells. All very well, said Gerald, but on one's honeymoon they distract the attention. Not mine, said Fryn simply. Then she added, There's still no one about. I expect they're all in the bar. I don't want to drink. I want to explore the town. As you wish, but hadn't you better unpack? I ought to, but I'm not going to. Not until after I've seen the sea. Such small shows of independence in her enchanted Gerald. Mrs. Pascoe was not about when they passed through the lounge, nor was there any sound of activity in the establishment. Outside, the bells seemed to be booming and bounding immediately over their heads. It's like warriors fighting in the sky, shouted Fryn. Do you think the sea's down there? She indicated the direction from which they had previously retraced their steps. I imagine so. The street seems to end in nothing. That will be the sea. Come on, let's run. 
She was off before he could even think about it. Then there was nothing to do but run after her. He hoped there were not eyes behind blinds. She stopped and held wide her arms to catch him. The top of her head hardly came up to his chin. He knew she was silently indicating that his failure to keep up with her was not a matter for self-consciousness. Isn't it beautiful? The sea? There was no moon, and little was discernible beyond the end of the street. Not only. Everything but the sea. The sea's invisible. You can smell it. I certainly can't hear it. She slackened her embrace and cocked her head away from him. The bells echo so much it's as if there were two churches. I'm sure there are more than that. There always are in old towns like this. Suddenly he was struck by the significance of his words in relation to what she had said. He shrank into himself, tautly listening. Yes, cried Fryn delightedly, it is another church. Impossible, said Gerald. Two churches wouldn't have practice ringing on the same night. I'm quite sure. I can hear one lot of bells with my left ear and another lot with my right. They had still seen no one. The sparse gaslights fell on the furnishings of a stone key, small but plainly in regular use. The whole population must be ringing the bells. His own remark discomforted Gerald. Good for them, she took his hand. Let's go down on the beach and look for the sea. They descended a flight of stone steps at which the sea had sucked and bitten. The beach was as stony as the steps, but lumpier. We'll just go straight on, said Fryn, until we find it. Left to himself, Gerald would have been less keen. The stones were very large and very slippery, and his eyes didn't seem to be becoming accustomed to the dark. You're right, Fryn, about the smell. Honest sea smell. Just as you say. He took it rather to be the smell of dense rotting weed across which he supposed they must be slithering. It was not a smell he had previously encountered in such strength. Energy could hardly be spared for thinking, and advancing hand in hand was impossible. After various random remarks on both sides and the lapse of what seemed a very long time, Fryn spoke again. Gerald, where is it? What sort of seaport is it that has no sea? She continued onwards, but Gerald stopped and looked back. He had thought the distance they had gone over long, but was startled to see how great it was. The darkness was doubtless deceitful, but the few lights on the quay appeared as on the distant horizon. The far glimmering speck still in his eyes, he turned and looked after Fryn. He could barely see her. Perhaps she was progressing faster without him. Fryn, darling! Unexpectedly, she gave a sharp cry. Fryn! She did not answer. Fryn! Then she spoke more or less calmly. Panic over, sorry darling, I stood on something. He realised that a panic it had indeed been, at least in him. You're all right? I think so. He struggled up to her. The smell's worse than ever. It was overpowering. I think it's coming from what I stepped on. My foot went right in, and then there was a smell. I've never known anything like it. Sorry, darling, she said, gently mocking him. Let's go away. Let's go back, don't you think? Yes, said Fryn, but I must warn you, I'm very disappointed. I think that seaside attractions should include the sea. He noticed that as they retreated, she was scraping the sides of one shoe against the stones, as if trying to clean it. 
I think the whole place is a disappointment, he said. I really must apologise. We'll go somewhere else. I like the bells, she replied, making a careful reservation. Gerald said nothing. I don't want to go somewhere where you've been before. The bells rang out over the desolate, unattractive beach. Now the sounds seemed to be coming from every point along the shore. I suppose all the churches practice on the same night in order to get it over with, said Gerald. They do it in order to see which can ring the loudest, said Fryn. Take care you don't twist your ankle. The din, as they reached the rough little key, was such as to suggest that Fryn's idea was literally true. The coffee room was so low that Gerald had to dip beneath a sequence of thick beams. Why coffee room? asked Fryn, looking at the words on the door. I saw notice that coffee will only be served in the lounge. It's the Lucas and non-Lucendo principle. Oh, that explains everything. I wonder where we sit. A single electric lantern, mass-produced in an antique pattern, had been turned on. The bulb was of that limited wattage which is peculiar to hotels. It did little to penetrate the shadows. The Lucas and non-Lucendo principle is the principle of calling white black. Not at all, said a voice from the darkness. On the contrary, the word black comes from an ancient root which means to bleach. They had thought themselves alone, but now saw a small man seated by himself at an unlighted corner table. In the darkness, he looked like a monkey. I stand corrected, said Gerald. They sat at the table under the lantern. The man in the corner spoke again. Why are you here at all? Fryn looked frightened. But Gerald replied quietly, We're on holiday. We prefer it out of season. I presume you are Commandant Shotcroft. No need to presume. Unexpectedly, the Commandant switched on the antique lantern which was nearest to him. His table was littered with a finished meal. It struck Gerald that he must have switched off the light when he heard them approach the coffee room. I'm going anyway. Are we late? asked Fryn, always the assuager of situations. No, you're not late, called the commandant in a deep, moody voice. My meals are prepared half an hour before the time the rest come in. I don't like eating in company. He had risen to his feet. So perhaps you'll excuse me. Without troubling about an answer, he stepped quickly out of the coffee room. He had cropped white hair tragic, heavy-lidded eyes and a round face which was yellow and lined. A second later, his head reappeared around the door. Ring, he said, and again withdrew. Too many other people ringing, said Gerald, but I don't see what else we can do. The coffee-room bell, however, made a noise like a fire alarm. Mrs. Pascoe appeared. She looked considerably the worse for drink. Didn't see you in the bar? "'Must have missed us in the crowd,' said Gerald amiably. Uh, "'Crowd?' inquired Mrs. Pascoe drunkenly. Then, after a difficult pause, she offered them a handwritten menu. They ordered, and Mrs. Pascoe served them throughout. Gerald was apprehensive lest her indisposition increased during the course of the meal, but her insobriety, like her affability, seemed to have an exact and definite limit. "'All things considered, the food might be worse,' remarked Gerald towards the end. It was a relief that something was going reasonably well. Not much of it, but at least the dishes are hot. When Fryn translated this into a compliment to the cook, Mrs. Pascoe said, 
I cooked it all myself, although I shouldn't be the one to say so. Gerald felt really surprised that she was in the condition to have accomplished this. Possibly, he reflected with alarm, she had had much practice under similar conditions. Coffee is served in the lounge, said Mrs. Pascoe. They withdrew. In a corner of the lounge was a screen decorated with winning Elizabethan ladies in ruffs and hoops. From behind it projected a pair of small black boots. Fryn nudged Gerald and pointed to them. Gerald nodded. They felt constrained to talk about things which bored them. The hotel was old and its walls thick. In the empty lounge the noise of the bells would not prevent conversation being overheard, but still came from all round as if the hotel were a fortress beleaguered by surrounding artillery. After their second cup of coffee, Gerald suddenly said he couldn't stand it. Darling, it's not doing us any harm. I think it's rather cosy. Fryn subsided in the wooden chair with its sloping back and long mud-coloured mock velvet cushions and opened her pretty legs to the fire. Every church in the town must be ringing its bells. It's been going on for two and a half hours and they never seem to take the usual breathers. We wouldn't hear that because of all the other bells ringing. I think it's nice of them to ring the bells for us. Nothing further was said for several minutes. Gerald was beginning to realise that they had yet to evolve a holiday routine. I'll get you a drink. What shall it be? Anything you like. Whatever you have. Fryn was immersed in female enjoyment of the fire's radiance on her body. Gerald missed this and said, I don't quite see why they have to keep the place like a hothouse. When I come back, we'll sit somewhere else. Men wear too many clothes, darling, said Fryn drowsily. Contrary to his assumption, Gerald found the lounge bar as empty as everywhere else in a hotel in the town. There was not even a person to dispense. Somewhat irritably, Gerald struck a brass bell which stood on the counter. It rang out sharply as a pistol shot. Mrs. Pascoe appeared at the door among the shelves. She had taken off her jacket and her makeup had begun to run. A cognac, please, double and a cummel. Mrs. Pascoe's hands were shaking so much that she couldn't get the cork out of the brandy bottle. Allow me, Gerald stretched his arm across the bar. Mrs. Pascoe stared at him blearily. Okay, but, but I must pour it. Gerald extracted the cork and returned the bottle. Mrs. Pascoe slopped a far from precise dose into a balloon. Catastrophe followed. Unable to return the bottle to the high shelf where it resided, Mrs. Pascoe placed it on a waist-level ledge. Reaching for the alembic of Kummel, she swept the three-quarters full brandy bottle onto the tiled floor. The stuffy air became fogged with the fumes of brandy from behind the bar. At the door from which Mrs. Pascoe had emerged appeared a man from the inner room. Though still youngish, he was puce and puffy, and in his braces with no collar. Streaks of sandy hair laced his vast red scalp. Liquor oozed all over him, as if from a perished gourd. Gerald took it that this was Don. The man was too drunk to articulate. He stood in the doorway, clinging with each red hand to the ledge, and savagely struggling to flay his wife with imprecations. How much? said Gerald to Mrs. Pascoe. It seemed useless to try for the cummel. The hotel must have another bar. Three and six, said Mrs. Pascoe, quite lucidly, but Gerald saw that she was about to weep. He had the exact sum. She turned her back on him and flicked the cash register. 
As she returned from it, he heard the fragmentation of glass as she stepped on a piece of the broken bottle. Gerald looked at her husband out of the corner of his eye. The sagging, loose-mouthed figure made him shudder. Something moved him. I'm sorry about the accident, he said to Mrs. Pascoe. He held the balloon in one hand and was just going. Mrs. Pascoe looked at him. The slow tears of desperation were edging down her face, but she now seemed quite sober. Mr. Banstead, she said in a flat, hurried voice, may I come and sit with you and your wife in the lounge just for a few minutes? Uh, Of course. It was certainly not what he wanted, and he wondered what would become of the bar, but he felt unexpectedly sorry for her, and it was impossible to say no. To reach the flap of the bar, she had to pass her husband. Gerald saw her hesitate for a second. Then she advanced resolutely and steadily and looking straight before her. If the man had let go with his hands, he would have fallen. But as she passed him, he released a great gob of spit. He was far too incapable to aim and it fell on the side of his own trousers. Gerald lifted the flap for Mrs. Pascoe and stood back to let her proceed him from the bar. As he followed her, he heard her husband maundering off into unintelligible inward searchings. "'The Cummel!' said Mrs. Pascoe, remembering in the doorway. Uh, "'Never mind,' said Gerald. "'Perhaps I could try one of the other bars. Not tonight. They're shut. I'd better go back. No, we'll think of something else.' It was not yet nine o'clock, and Gerald wondered about the licensing justices. But in the lounge was another unexpected scene. Mrs. Pascoe stopped as soon as they entered, and Gerald, caught between two imitation leather armchairs, looked over her shoulder. Fryn had fallen asleep. Her head was slightly on one side, but her mouth was shut, and her body no more than gracefully relaxed, so that she looked almost beautiful, and Gerald thought, a trifle unearthly like a dead girl in an early picture by Millet. The quality of her beauty seemed also to have impressed Commandant Shotcroft, for he was standing silently behind her and looking down at her, his sad face transfigured. Gerald noticed that a leaf of the pseudo-Elizabethan screen had been folded back, revealing a small creton-covered chair with an open tome face downward in its seat. "'Won't you join us?' said Gerald boldly. There was that in the Commandant's face which boded no hurt. Uh, "'Can I get you a drink?' The commandant did not turn his head, and for a moment seemed unable to speak. Then, in a low voice, he said, For a moment only. Good, said Gerald. Sit down. And you, Mrs. Pascoe. Mrs. Pascoe was dabbing at her face. Gerald addressed the commandant. What shall it be? Nothing to drink, said the commandant in the same low mutter. It occurred to Gerald that if Frin awoke, the commandant would go. "'What about you?' Gerald looked at Mrs. Pascoe, earnestly hoping she would decline. "'No, thanks.' She was glancing at the Commandant. Clearly, she had not expected him to be there. Fryn being asleep, Gerald sat down too. He sipped his brandy. It was impossible to romanticise the action with a toast. The events in the bar had made him forget about the bells. Now, as they sat silently around the sleeping Fryn, the tide of sound swept over him once more. "'You mustn't think,' said Mrs. Pascoe, "'that he's always like that.' They all spoke in hushed voices. All of them seemed to have reason to do so. The Commandant was again gazing somberly at Fryn's beauty. Of course not. But it was hard to believe. 
The licensed business puts temptations in a man's way. It must be very difficult. We ought never to have come here. We were happy in South Norwood. You must do good business during the season. Two months, said Mrs. Pascoe bitterly, but still softly. Two and a half at the very most. The people who come during the season have no idea what goes on out of it. What made you leave South Norwood? Don's stomach. The doctor said the air would do him good. Speaking of that, doesn't the sea go too far out? We went down on the beach before dinner, but couldn't see it anywhere. On the other side of the fire, the commandant turned his eyes from Fryn and looked at Gerald. I wouldn't know, said Mrs. Pascoe. I never have time to look from one year's end to the other. It was a customary enough answer, but Gerald felt that it did not disclose the whole truth. He noticed that Mrs. Pascoe glanced uneasily at the commandant, who by now was staring neither at Fryn nor at Gerald, but at the toppling citadels in the fire. "'And now I must get on with my work,' continued Mrs. Pascoe. "'I only came in for a minute.' She looked Gerald in the face. "'Thank you,' she said, and rose. "'Please stay a little longer,' said Gerald. "'Wait till my wife wakes up.' As he spoke, Fryn slightly shifted. I can't be done, said Mrs. Pascoe, her lips smiling. Gerald noticed that all the time she was watching the commandant from under her lids, and he knew that were he not there, she would have stayed. As it was, she went. I'll probably see you later to say good night. Sorry the water's not very hot. It's having no porter. The bell showed no sign of flagging. When Mrs. Pascoe had closed the door, the commandant spoke. He was a fine man once, don't think otherwise. You mean Pascoe? The commandant nodded seriously. Not my type, said Gerald. DSO and bar, DFC and bar. And now, bar only. Why? You heard what she said, it was a lie. They didn't leave South Norwood for the sea air. So I supposed. He got into trouble. He was fixed. He wasn't the kind of man to know about human nature and all its rottenness. A pity, said Gerald, but perhaps even so this isn't the best place for him. It's the worst, said the commandant, a dark flame in his eyes, for him or anyone else. Again Fryn shifted in her sleep, this time more convulsively, so that she nearly woke. For some reason the two men remained speechless and motionless until she was again breathing steadily. Against the silence within, the bells sounded louder than ever. It was as if the tumult were tearing holes in the roof. It's certainly a very noisy place, said Gerald, still in an undertone. Why did you have to come tonight, of all nights? The commandant spoke in the same undertone, but his vehemence was extreme. This doesn't happen often. Once every year. They should have told us. They don't usually accept bookings. They've no right to accept them. When Pascoe was in charge, they never did. I expect that Mrs. Pascoe felt they were in no position to turn away business. It's not a matter that should be left to a woman. Not much alternative, surely. At heart, women are creatures of darkness all the time. The commandant's seriousness and bitterness left Gerald without reply. My wife doesn't mind the bells, he said, after a moment. In fact, she rather likes them. 
The Commandant really was converting a nuisance, although an acute one, into a melodrama. The Commandant turned and gazed at him. It struck Gerald that what he had just said in some way for the Commandant placed Fryn also in a category of the lost. Take her away, man, said the Commandant with scornful ferocity. In a day or two, perhaps, said Gerald, patiently polite. I admit that we are disappointed with Hollyhaven. Now, while there's still time, this instant. There was an intensity of conviction about the Commandant which was alarming. Gerald considered. Even the empty lounge with its dreary decorations and commonplace furniture seemed inimical. They can hardly go on practising all night, he said, but it was fear that hushed his voice. Practising? The Commandant's scorn flickered coldly through the overheated room. What else? They're ringing to wake the dead. The tremor of wind in the flue momentarily drew on the already roaring fire. Gerald had turned very pale. That's a figure of speech, he said, hardly to be heard. Not in Hollyhaven. The Commandant's gaze had returned to the fire. Gerald looked at Fryn. She was breathing less heavily. His voice dropped to a whisper. What happens? The Commandant was also nearly whispering. No one can tell how long they have to go on ringing. It varies from year to year. I don't know why. You should be all right up to midnight, probably for some while after. In the end, the dead wake. First one or two, then all of them. Tonight, even the sea draws back. You've seen that for yourself. In a place like this, there are always several drowned each year. This year, there'll be more than several. But even so, that's only a few. Most of them come not from the water, but from the earth. It is not a pretty sight. Where do they go? I've never followed them to see. I'm not stark staring mad. The red of the fire reflected in the Commandant's eyes. There was a long pause. I don't believe in the resurrection of the body, said Gerald. As the hour grew later, the bells grew louder. Not of the body. What other kind of resurrection is possible? Everything else is only theory. You can't even imagine it. No one can. Gerald had not argued such a thing for twenty years. So, he said, you advise me to go. Where? Where doesn't matter. I have no car. Then you'd better walk. With, with her? He indicated Fryn only with his eyes. She's young and strong. A forlorn tenderness lay within the Commandant's words. She's twenty years younger than you and therefore twenty years more important. Y yes, said Gerald, I, I agree. What about you? What will you do? I've lived here some time now. I know what to do. And the Pascos? He's drunk. There's nothing in the world to fear if you're thoroughly drunk. DSO and bar, DFC and bar. But you're not drinking yourself. Not since I came to Hollyhaven. I lost the knack. Suddenly Fryn sat up. Hello, she said to the Commandant, not yet fully awake. Then she said, What fun! The bells are still ringing. The Commandant rose, his eyes averted. I don't think there's anything more to say. He remarked, addressing Gerald. You've still got time. He nodded slightly to Fryn. What have you still got time for? asked Fryn, stretching. Was he trying to convert you? I'm sure he's an Anabaptist. Uh, something like that, said Gerald, trying to think. Shall we go to bed? Sorry, I'm so sleepy. 
Nothing to be sorry about. Or, or shall we go for another walk? That would wake me up. Besides, the tide might have come in. Gerald, although he half despised himself for it, found it impossible to explain to her that they should leave at once, without transport or a destination, walk all night if necessary. He said to himself that probably he would not go, even were he alone. If you're sleepy, it's probably a good thing. Darling, I'm in with these bells. God knows when they'll stop. Instantly, he felt a new pang of fear at what he had said. Mrs. Pascoe had appeared at the door leading to the bar and opposite to that from which the commandant had departed. She wore two steaming glasses on a tray. She looked about, possibly to confirm that the commandant had really gone. I thought you might both like a nightcap, Ovaltine, with something in it. Thank you, said Fryn. I can't think of anything nicer. Gerald set the glasses on a wicker table and quickly finished his cognac. Mrs. Pascoe began to move chairs and slap cushions. She looked very haggard. Is the commandant an Anabaptist? asked Fryn over her shoulder. She was proud of her ability to outdistance Gerald in beginning to consume a hot drink. Mrs. Pascoe stopped slapping for a moment. I don't know what that is, she said. He's left his book, said Fryn, on a new tack. I wonder what he's reading, continued Fryn. Fox's Lives of the Martyrs, I expect. A small, unusual devil seemed to have entered into her. But Mrs. Pascoe knew the answer. It's always the same, she said contemptuously. He only reads one. It's called Fifteen Decisive Battles of the World. He's been reading it ever since he came here. When he gets to the end, he starts again. Should I take it up to him? asked Gerald. It was neither courtesy nor inclination, but rather a fear lest the commandant return to the lounge, a desire, after those few minutes of reflection, to cross-examine. Thanks very much, said Mrs. Pascoe, as if relieved of a similar apprehension. Room one, next to the suit of Japanese armour. She went on tipping and banging. To Gerald's inflamed nerves, her behaviour seemed too consciously normal. He collected the book and made his way upstairs. The volume was bound in real leather and the top of its pages were gilded, apparently a presentation copy. Outside the lounge, Gerald looked at the flyleaf. In a very large hand was written, To my dear son Raglan, on his being honoured by the Queen, from his proud father B. Shotcroft, Major General. Beneath the inscription, a very ugly military crest had been appended by a stamper of primitive type. The suit of Japanese armour lurked in a dark corner as the commandant himself had done when Gerald had first encountered him. The wide brim of the helmet concealed the black eye holes in the headpiece. The moustache bristled realistically. It was exactly as if the figure stood guard over the door behind it. On this door was no number, but there being no other in sight, Gerald took it to be the door of number one. A short way down the dim, empty passage was a window, the ancient sashes of which shook in the din and blast of the bells. Gerald knocked sharply. If there was a reply, the bells drowned it, and he knocked again. When, to the third knocking, there was still no answer, he gently opened the door. He really had to know whether all would or could be well if Fryn, and doubtless he also, were at all costs to remain in their room until it was dawn. He looked into the room and caught his breath. There was no artificial light, but the curtains, if there were any, had been drawn back from the single window, and the bottom sash forced up as far as it would go. On the floor, by the dusky void, a maelstrom of sound, knelt the commandant. 
his cropped white hair faintly catching the moonless glimmer as his head lay on the sill like that of a man about to be guillotined. His face was in his hands but slightly sideways so that Gerald received a shadowy, distorted idea of his expression. Some might have called it ecstatic, but Gerald found it agonised. It frightened him more than anything which had yet happened. Inside the room the bells were like plunging, roaring lions. He stood for some considerable time quite unable to move. He could not determine whether or not the Commandant knew he was there. The Commandant gave no direct sign of it, but more than once he writhed and shuddered in Gerald's direction like an unquiet sleeper made more unquiet by an interloper. It was a matter of doubt whether Gerald should leave the book, and he decided to do so mainly because the thought of further contact with it displeased him. He crept into the room and softly laid it on a hardly visible wooden trunk at the foot of the plain metal bedstead. There seemed no other furniture in the room. Outside the door the hanging mailed fingers of the Japanese figure touched his wrist. He had not been away from the lounge for long, but it was long enough for Mrs. Pascoe to have begun to drink again. She had left the tidying up half completed, or rather the room half disarranged, and was leaning against the overmantel, drawing heavily on a dark tumbler of whisky. Fryn had not yet finished her Ovaltine. How long before the bells stop? asked Gerald as soon as he opened the lounge door. Now he was resolved that come what might, they must go. The impossibility of sleep should serve as an excuse. I don't expect Mrs. Pascoe can know any more than we can, said Fryn. You should have told us about this, this annual event, before accepting our booking. Mrs. Pascoe drank some more whiskey. Gerald suspected that it was neat. It's not always the same night, she said throatily, looking at the floor. We're not staying, said Gerald wildly. Darling, Fryn caught him by the arm. Leave this to me, Fryn. He addressed Mrs. Pascoe. We'll pay for the room, of course. Please order me a car. Mrs. Pascoe was now regarding him stonily. When he asked for a car, she gave a very short laugh. Then her face changed. She made an effort and she said, You mustn't take the Commandant so seriously, you know. Fryn glanced quickly at her husband. The whisky was finished. Mrs. Pascoe placed the empty glass on the plastic overmantel with too much of a thud. No one takes Commandant Shotcroft seriously, she said, not even his nearest and dearest. Has he any? asked Fryn. He seemed so lonely and pathetic. He's Don and I's mascot, she said, the drink interfering with her grammar, but not even the drink could leave any doubt about her rancour. I thought he had personality, said Fryn. That and a lot more, no doubt, said Mrs. Pascoe, but they pushed him out all the same. Out of what? cashiered, court-martialed, badges of rank stripped off, sword broken in half, muffled drums, the works. Poor old man, I'm sure it was a miscarriage of justice. That's because you don't know him. Mrs. Pascoe looked as if she were waiting for Gerald to offer her another whiskey. It's another thing he could never live down, said Fryn, brooding to herself and tucking her legs beneath her. No wonder he's so queer if all the time it was a mistake. I just told you it was not a mistake, said Mrs. Pascoe insolently. How can we possibly know? You can't. I can. No one better. She was at once aggressive and tearful. 
If you want to be paid, cried Gerald, forcing himself in, make out your bill. Fryn, come upstairs and pack. If only he hadn't made her unpack between their walk and dinner. Slowly, Fryn uncoiled and rose to her feet. She had no intention of either packing or departing, but nor was she going to argue. I shall need your help, she said softly, if I'm going to pack. In Mrs. Pascoe there was another change. Now she looked terrified. Don't, don't go, please don't go. Not now. It's too late. Gerald confronted her. Too late for what? He asked harshly. Mrs. Pascoe looked paler than ever. You said you wanted a car, she faltered. You're too late. Her voice trailed away. Gerald took Fryn by the arm. Come on up. Before they reached the door, Mrs. Pascoe made a further attempt. You'll be all right if you stay. Really, you will. Her voice, normally somewhat strident, was so feeble that the bells obliterated it. Gerald observed that from somewhere she had produced the whiskey bottle and was refilling her tumbler. With Fryn on his arm, he went first to the stout front door. To his surprise, it was neither locked nor bolted, but opened at a half turn of the handle. Outside the building, the whole sky was full of bells, the air an inferno of ringing. He thought that for the first time Fryn's face also seemed strained and crestfallen. They've been ringing too long, she said, drawing close to him. I wish they'd stop. We're packing and going. I needed to know whether we could get out this way. We must shut the door quietly. It creaked a bit on its hinges, and he hesitated with it half shut, uncertain whether to rush the creak or to ease it. Suddenly, something dark and shapeless, with its arm seeming to hold a black vesture over its head, flitted, all sharp angles like a bat, down the narrow, ill-lighted street, the sound of its passage audible to none. It was the first being that either of them had seen in the streets of Hollyhaven, and Gerald was acutely relieved that he alone had set eyes upon it. With his hand trembling, he shut the door much too sharply. But no one could possibly have heard, although he stopped for a second outside the lounge. He could hear Mrs. Pascoe now weeping hysterically, and again was glad that Fryn was a step or two ahead of him. Upstairs, the commandant's door lay straight before them. They had to pass close beside the Japanese figure in order to take the passage to the left of it. But soon they were in their room, with the key turned in the big rim lock. Oh, God! cried Gerald, sinking on the double bed. It's pandemonium! Not for the first time that evening he was instantly more frightened than ever by the unintended appositeness of his own words. It's pandemonium, all right, said Fryn, almost calmly, and we're not going out in it. He was at a loss to divine how much she knew, guessed or imagined, and any word of enlightenment from him might be inconceivably dangerous. But he was conscious of the strength of her resistance and lacked the reserves to battle with it. She was looking out of the window into the main street. We might will them to stop she suggested wearily. Gerald was now far less frightened of the bells continuing than of their ceasing, but that they should go on ringing until day broke seemed hopelessly impossible. Then one peal stopped. 
there could be no other explanation for the obvious diminution in sound. You see, said Fryn. Gerald sat up straight on the side of the bed. Almost at once, further sections of sound subsided, quickly one after the other, until only a single peal was left, that which had begun the ringing. Then the single peal tapered off into a single bell. The single bell tolled on its own disjointedly, five or six or seven times. Then it stopped, and there was nothing. Gerald's head was a cave of echoes mountingly muffled by the noisy current of his blood. Oh, goodness, said Fryn, turning from the window and stretching her arms above her head. Let's go somewhere else tomorrow. She began to take off her dress. Sooner than usual they were in bed and in one another's arms. Gerald had carefully not looked out of the window, and neither of them suggested that it should be opened, as they usually did. As it's a four-poster, shouldn't we draw the curtains, asked Fryn, and be really snug, after those damned bells? We should suffocate. They only drew the curtains when people were likely to pass through the room. Darling, you're shivering. I think we should draw them. Lie still instead, and love me. But all his nerves were straining out into the silence. There was no sound of any kind, beyond the hotel or within it not a creaking floorboard or a prowling cat or a distant owl. He had been afraid to look at his watch when the bells stopped or since. The number of the dark hours before they could leave Hollyhaven weighed on him. The vision of the commandant kneeling in the dark window was clear before his eyes, as if the intervening panelled walls were made of stage gauze and the thing he had seen in the street darted on its angular way back and forth through memory. Then passion began to open its petals within him, layer upon slow layer, like an illusionist's red flower, which, without soil or sun or sap, grows as it is watched. The languor of tenderness began to fill the musty room with its texture and perfume. The transparent walls became again opaque, the old man's vaticinations mere obsessions. The street must have been empty, as it was now, the eye deceived. But, perhaps, rather it was the boundless sequacity of love that deceived, and most of all in the matter of the time which had passed since the bell stopped ringing, for suddenly Fryn drew very close to him, and he heard steps in the thoroughfare outside, and a voice calling. These were loud steps, audible from afar, even through the shut window, and the voice had the possessed stridency of the street evangelist. The dead are awake! Not even the thick bucolic accent, the guttural vibrato of emotion, could twist or mask the meaning. At first Gerald lay listening with all his body and concentrating the more as the noise grew. Then he sprang from the bed and ran to the window. A burly, long-limbed man in a seaman's jersey was running down the street, coming clearly into view for a second at each lamp and between them lapsing into a swaying, lumpy wraith. As he shouted his joyous message, he crossed from side to side and waved his arms like a negro. 
By flashes, Gerald could see that his weather-worn face was transfigured. The dead are awake. Already behind him, people were coming out of their houses and descending from the rooms above shops. There were men, women and children. Most of them were fully dressed and must have been waiting in silence and darkness for the call, but a few were dishevelled in night attire or the first garments which had come to hand. Some formed themselves into groups and advanced arm in arm as if towards the conclusion of a Blackpool Beano. More came singly, ecstatic and waving their arms above their heads as the first man had done. All cried out again and again, with no cohesion or harmony, The dead are awake! The dead are awake! Gerald became aware that Fryn was standing behind him. The commandant warned me, he said brokenly. We should have gone. Fryn shook her head and took his arm. Nowhere to go, she said. But her voice was soft with fear, and her eyes blank. I don't expect they'll trouble us. Swiftly, Gerald drew the thick plush curtains, leaving them in complete darkness. We'll sit it out, he said, slightly histrionic in his fear, no matter what happens. He scrambled across to the switch, but when he pressed it, light did not come. The current's gone. We must get back into bed. Gerald, come and help me. He remembered that she was curiously vulnerable in the dark. He found his way to her and guided her to the bed. No more love, she said ruefully and affectionately, her teeth chattering. He kissed her lips with what gentleness the total night made possible. They were going towards the sea, she said timidly. We must think of something else. But the noise was still growing. The whole community seemed to be passing down the street, yelling the same dreadful words again and again. Do you think we can? Yes, said Gerald. It's only until tomorrow. They can't be actually dangerous, said Fryn, or it would be stopped. Yes, of course. By now, as always happens, the crowd had amalgamated their utterances and were beginning to shout in unison. They were like agitators bawling a slogan or masked troublemakers at a football match. But at the same time, the noise was beginning to draw away. Gerald suspected that the entire population of the place was on the march. Soon it was apparent that a processional route was being followed. The tumult could be heard winding about from quarter to quarter, sometimes drawing near so that Gerald and Fryn were once more seized by the first chill of panic, then again almost fading away. It was possibly this great variability in the volume of the sound which led Gerald to believe that there were distinct pauses in the massed shouting, periods when it was superseded by far disorderly cheering. Certainly, it began also to seem that the thing shouted had changed, but he could not make out the new cry, although unwillingly he strained to do so. It's extraordinary how frightened one can be, said Fryn, even when one is not directly menaced. It must prove that we all belong to one another, or, or whatever it is, after all. In many similar remarks they discussed the thing at one remove. Experience showed that this was better than not discussing it at all. In the end there could be no doubt that the shouting had stopped, and that now the crowd was singing. It was no song that Gerald had ever heard 
but something about the way it was sung convinced him that it was a hymn or psalm set to an out-of-date popular tune. Once more the crowd was approaching, this time steadily, but with strange, interminable slowness. What the hell are they doing now? asked Gerald of the blackness. His nerves wound so tight that the foolish question was forced out of them. Palpably the crowd had completed its peregrination and was returning up the main street from the sea. The singers seemed to gasp and fluctuate as if worn out with gay exercise like children at a party. There was a steady undertow of scraping and scuffling. Time passed and more time. Fryn spoke. I believe they're dancing. She moved slightly as if she thought of going to see. No, no, said Gerald and clutched her fiercely. There was a tremendous concussion on the ground floor below them. The front door had been violently thrown back. They could hear the hotel filling with a stamping, singing mob. Doors banged everywhere and furniture was overturned as the beatic throng surged and stumbled through the involved darkness of the old building. Glasses went and china and Birmingham brass warming pans. In a moment, Gerald heard the Japanese armour crash to the boards. Fryn screamed. Then a mighty shoulder made strong by the sea's assault rammed at the panelling and their door was down. The living and the dead danced together. Now's the time, now's the place, now's the weather. At last Gerald could make out the words. The stresses in the song were heavily beaten down by much repetition. Hand in hand, through the dim grey gap of the doorway, the dancers lumbered and shambled in, singing frenziedly and brokenly, ecstatic but exhausted. Through the stuffy blackness they swayed and shambled, more and more of them, until the room must have been packed tight with them. Fryn screamed again, The smell! Oh, God, the smell! It was the smell they had encountered on the beach in the congested room, no longer merely offensive, but obscene, unspeakable. Fryn was hysterical, all self-control gone. She was scratching and tearing and screaming again and again. Gerald tried to hold her, but one of the dancers struck him so hard in the darkness that she was jolted out of his arms. Instantly it seemed that she was no longer there at all. The dancers were thronging everywhere, their limbs whirling, their lungs bursting with the rhythm of the song. It was difficult for Gerald even to call out. He tried to struggle after Fryn, but immediately a blow from a massive elbow knocked him to the floor, an abyss of invisible trampling feet. But soon the dancers were going again, not only from the room, but it seemed from the building also. Crushed and tormented though he was, Gerald could hear the song being resumed in the street as the various frenzied groups debouched and reunited. Within, before long, there was nothing but the chaos, the darkness and the putrescent odour. Gerald felt so sick that he had to battle with unconsciousness. He could not think or move despite the desperate need. Then he struggled into a sitting position and sank his head on the torn sheets of the bed. For an uncertain period he was insensible to everything, but in the end he heard steps approaching down the dark passage. 
His door was pushed back, and the commandant entered, gripping a lighted candle. He seemed to disregard the flow of hot wax which had already congealed on much of his knotted hand. She's safe. Small thanks to you. The commandant stared icily at Gerald's undignified figure. Gerald had tried to stand. He was terribly bruised and so giddy that he wondered if this could be concussion, but relief rallied him. Is it thanks to you? She was caught up in it, dancing with the rest. The commandant's eyes glowed in the candlelight. The singing and dancing had almost died away. Still, Gerald could do no more than sit upon the bed. His voice was low and indistinct, as if coming from outside his body. W were they... were some of them? The commandant replied more scornful than ever of his weakness. She was between two of them. Each had one of her hands. Gerald could not look at him. What did you do? he asked in the same remote voice. I did what had to be done. I hope it was in time. After the slightest possible pause, he continued, You'll find her downstairs. I'm grateful. Such a silly thing to say, but what else is there? Can you walk? I, I think so. I'll light you down. Commandant's tone was as uncompromising as always. There were two more candles in the lounge, and Fryn, wearing a woman's belted overcoat which was not hers, sat between them, drinking. Mrs. Pascoe, fully dressed but with eyes averted, pottered about the wreckage. It seemed hardly more than if she were completing the task which earlier she had left unfinished. "'Darling, look at you!' Fryn's words were still hysterical, but her voice was as gentle as it usually was. Gerald, bruises and thoughts of concussion forgotten, dragged her into his arms. They embraced silently for a long time, then he looked into her eyes. Here I am, she said, and looked away. Not to worry. Silently and unnoticed, the commandant had already retreated. Without returning his gaze, Fryn finished her drink as she stood there. Gerald supposed that it was one of Mrs. Pascoe's concoctions. It was so dark where Mrs. Pascoe was working that her labours could have been achieving little, but she said nothing to her visitors, nor they to her. At the door, Fryn unexpectedly stripped off the overcoat and threw it on a chair. Her nightdress was so torn that she stood almost naked. Dark though it was, Gerald saw Mrs. Pascoe regarding Fryn's pretty body with a stare of animosity. "'May we take one of the candles?' he said, normal standards reasserting themselves in him. But Mrs. Pascoe continued to stand silently staring, and they lighted themselves through the wilderness of broken furniture to the ruins of their bedroom. The Japanese figure was still prostrate, and the commandant's door shut, and the smell had almost gone. Even by seven o'clock the next morning surprisingly much had been done to restore order, but no one seemed to be about, and Gerald and Fryn departed without a word. In Rack Street a milkman was delivering, but Gerald noticed that his cart bore the name of another town. A minute boy whom they encountered later on an obscure, purposeful errand might, however, have been indigenous. And when they reached Station Road they saw a small plot of land on which already men were silently at work with spades in their hands. They were as thick as flies on a wound and as black. In the darkness of the previous evening, Gerald and Fryn had missed the place. A board named it the New Municipal Cemetery. In the mild light of an autumn morning, the sight of the black and silent toilers was horrible, 
but Fryn didn't seem to find it so. On the contrary, her cheeks reddened and her soft mouth became fleetingly more voluptuous still. She seemed to have forgotten Gerald, so that he was able to examine her closely for a moment. It was the first time he had done so since the night before. Then, once more, she became herself. In those previous seconds, Gerald had become aware of something dividing them, which neither of them would ever mention, or ever forget. Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody dies, don't they? Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked drawer today, didn't you? So that was Ringing the Changes by Robert Aikman. It's one of his most famous stories. Let me tell you something about Robert Aikman. And this is in some sense the easiest part. So Robert Aikman was a British author best known for his highly influential and distinctive contributions to the genre of supernatural fiction. Born on June 27, 1914 in London, England, Aikman spent much of his life exploring his passion for writing and exploring the depths of the human psyche through his unique brand of storytelling. Aikman's early life was marked by a fascination with the strange and macabre. As a child, he developed an interest in ghost stories and the supernatural, which would later become significant themes in his works. He attended Highgate School in London, big posh school, that nice, nice, I remember standing outside it anyway, and went on to study law at Cambridge University, although he would eventually choose not to pursue a legal career. Instead, Aikman became deeply involved in various literary endeavours. He co-founded the Inland Waterways Association, an organisation dedicated to preserving Britain's canal system, along with L.T.C. Rolt, who's, who also wrote Ghost Stories, whose work we've done here. Um, so, a uh, little more about him. Aikman wrote a lot of uh, short stories. Apparently, he was a critic, reviewer and editor, writing for magazines such as the London Mercury and Times Literary Supplement, he became acquainted with many prominent literary figures, including J.R.R. Tolkien, apparently who became a friend and source of inspiration. Um, his first collection, 50, 1951, We Are for the Dark, followed by several other collections over the years, Aikman's stories are characterised by their atmospheric prose, subtle psychological horror and an emphasis on the uncanny and unknown. His tales often feature ordinary characters thrust into extraordinary and unsettling situations where the line between reality and the supernatural becomes blurred. I would say it's uh, not actually the supernatural, but... So people... Um, um, he was felt to be underappreciated during his life. He died in 1981 in London, and uh, he's become more and more famous. He's been championed by people like Mark Gattis as well. Um, who will be well known to you for his interest in ghost stories and his performance in the League of um, Extraordinary Gentlemen. You know, I never watched that, which is bizarre and odd, odd as well. So um, this one, Ringing the Changes, is a very famous story of his, and it was published in 1965 as part of his collection, Dark Entries. It's not a ghost story, is it? And I'm not even sure it's a supernatural story, when I read, it has roots and it has its roots there. But when I read um, these stories, I get a lot more continental influence. So I'm thinking of Franz Kafka, um, the weirdness of his stories, and Bruno Schultz, who we did the 
um, probably like to do more a Polish writer who also did the kind of nightmarish surrealist stories and um, Gustav Meyrink, the Austrian writer. I'm sure there are others as well. And 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 what happens is, and why I found them disturbing is they are ordinary. We did the, the hospice as well. I've done a couple of Aikman stories. I like Aikman, although he does. He's one of the few writers who unsettles me. I can read all sorts of gore horror. I don't actually choose to read that very much, but I can read it and I may be disgusted, but I'm not actually frightened. And um, a, lot, a lot of the gothic stuff, which I love because of its gothicism, doesn't frighten me. But, but Aikman unnerves me. He unsettles my reality um, in a sense. That's a funny thing to say, isn't it? But what I mean is um, that what he does is he takes ordinary things. And this is very 1950s England. I, particularly when I was younger, when my parents went into pubs like this in provincial towns, and they were they had a certain down at heel, slightly musty feel to them, and they were conventional and conservative in a way, but not not very classy, you know, and um, and they've gone pretty much. So that's a, a cause. We we lose everything, of course. I was talking to Sheila about this. Everything you love, you lose, and even if you don't love it, you still lose it. So um, everything changes, and, and there is nostalgia in these things as well. So although. These were not the most wonderful places in the world. Their passing has removed something from my life. And, and in a sense, maybe because I'm of a certain age, obviously I'm not as old as him. Um, he he speaks to an, a Britain, probably, that, that no longer exists, and possibly an Ireland as well. And, and this is always controversial when you link the two islands because of their difficult history. But um, um, there is much of... Ireland, which is reminiscent of, and I've never been to New Zealand, they say similar thing, you know, it is like stepping back a few decades. Now, I, I haven't been to Ireland actually since, for about, since before COVID. So, um, it, it, you know, take it with that and don't be offended. I, I never mean to offend anybody, you know. Um, and so, so here we are in this dingy that we could have, that was typical and they go away and it's just, Odd, isn't it? It's not supernatural. Well, the, the dead rise, so that's fairly supernatural. But it's more, to me, it's more like a nightmare. It's a surrealist nightmare. It's like those dreams you have, which just become odd. They start off, which you take them, you know, you're in the dream, nothing seems wrong. This is You take it as normal, and then it's just bizarre. Um, and it's the bizarreness. Now, I said elsewhere, people, there are roots. If you look at um, the early ghosts, what happened was the 1820s, we start getting the Gothic tales and they would have huge helmets falling from the sky and they're, they're all, you know, very gothic -y. And then we get into the Victorian period where we get the classic ghost story of the haunted house, uh, often um, gentlemen recounting the stories in their club. Uh, Susan Hill does great pastiches of these. And when I say pastiche, I don't mean to run it down. They're really enjoyable stories that she does. Um, but they're like that, of the classic ghost story. And then you get um, people making fun of those classic ghost stories. So you get things like Honeysuckle Cottage, which we just did by P.G. Woodhouse. And, yeah, Woodhouse. Yeah, not Wodehouse, Woodhouse. Uh, and um, um, Richard Middleton's The Ghost Ship, which are poking fun at the classic ghost story. But other things happen and just before those, we have M.R. James, the great M.R. James. I don't think E.F. Benson, E.F. Benson does do this a bit. 
he has nightmarish um, elements like the room in the tower and uh, the room, uh, the house with the brick kiln, which we've done, which are just, that isn't as, but the room in the tower certainly is nightmarish. It has this surreal nightmarish vibe to it. And and M.R. James, of course, and, and I think the real unsettling thing about M.R. James is he, he puts, he intrudes, he describes situations, a classically um, a whistle, uh, and I'll come to you, my lad. Um, the, the thing just coming closer, uh, the thing in the mezzo tint as well that, that's in the picture, and we get some explanation for them, but very often, and the, 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 the shirt in the bed, you know, in a whistle, and they're not explained, and it is this lack of resolution which unsettles, because I think as human beings, I've said this many, many times, but I think as human beings, and Freud talks about this in um, Freud talks about this in his classic uh, work on the uncanny. But Mark Fisher, the critic, also in his book The Weird and the Eerie, also talks about this as well. How um, and even people like um, I remember reading a book uh, called Maps of Meaning by Jordan Peterson, and he talks about it as well. And he um, he I, I, what I think about Peterson is, and I'm not talking about his politics. I'm talking about his his psychological work. He is a great operationalizer. So basically, you can read Piaget, the great um, French child, or was he Swiss, child development um, psychologist, and Carl Jung, this, the, uh, who was definitely Swiss. And Peterson, in his book, Maps and Meaning, great big book, very good book, um, he, he explains it for the ordinary man, if you like, or woman. And um, basically, we... We operate as creatures. We operate according to rules. We look at the. We want to know how things work. I've just got my pups, as you know, and we walk them, and they're scared of cars. But over time, they will learn. They will pin cars down. This is what they are. They're noisy. They move fast. This is where they stay. It's okay, you know. But we, as creatures, like everything to be predictable. So we say, you know, if we go on the subway, this is how people should behave. If we go to the cinema or the supermarket or a bookshop or a job interview, we know the rules. This is Piaget who says famously that the game of marbles, a, a, a young child knows how to play, but they can't tell you how to play. Or And, and Peters, this is Peterson's example, a wolf pack um, knows the, the very complicated rules of the wolf pack, but can't explain them to you. So there, there are, um, and we have, our life is ruled by these and they make us safe. We look at other people we look at them, we try and work out what they are, how they fit in in our schema for the world and whether they are threatening or not. And we get a resolution of tension as soon as we can pin something down. That is a goth or that is a businesswoman. Um, that is a doctor. That is a bus driver. Um, this person coming towards me, these couple, they are a, a, a loving couple, you know. Or uh, this man is... Uh, drunk and unpredictable and so we we get our cues now i think in this kind of horror that he gives us things and goes this is significant and doesn't resolve it i think that's the issue takes the ordinary so this this experience of going to this down at heel provincial hotel in october and i don't it's not said it's halloween so another critic so another critic, I'm not a critic, had said, um, this guy called Simon Cook, I'll put a link, he's done a really interesting um, 
Aikman studies thing. It's re really worthwhile if you want to go further into it. Um, he says it's Halloween. I'm not, I'm not sure I get that. I think it's October, but I may have missed something. So, yeah, it's very ordinary. And then it becomes not ordinary. I mean, we get things that, that are possible, but are um, outside the normal. So what I mean by that is Don Pasco, the drunken husband. You know, it looks like Mrs. Pasco, who also has a drink problem, uh, has put up with Don and his stomach. Of course, bad stomachs are very often associated most a lot of gastritis cases are alcohol related i don't know if people realize that i get my patient the guy got this bad stomach it's because you tip loads of alcohol down your throat every day and it, it corrodes everywhere it goes you know so you'll have a you'll have gastritis you'll have pancreatitis you'll have all sorts of stuff you know anyway i digress so um but him standing there spitting is just a little bit beyond and we don't like that kind of unpredictable behavior but another thing is that um Aikman, as in a dream, gives us these characters like Commandant Shotcroft, who turns out to be a bit of a, a hero, and uh, Mrs. Pascoe, and gives us them, and the Japanese armour, and goes, and we think, because we're used to being queued up, we, we've read and seen a lot of stories, and we know that if somebody brandishes a rose, that's going to have something to do later in the story. You know, if the, if the, um, the writer draws our attention to something, we sit and go, oh, well, that is, don't clock that. That is going to play some, and this is how you do red herrings, because you can miscue, you can direct the audience another way by going, ah, a Japanese armour. And in a normal story, that would have a role to play. But, of course, it doesn't. So what we're left with are these unresolved issues. Now, this thing called a Ziganic tension. And I'm, I talk about this as well. There's a, I think it's Olga Ziganic anyway. Some, I think she was a Bulgarian working in Russia. And basically what she said was that when we are presented with a, a question, and they're called, David Allen calls them an open loop, I think, we get a little bit of tension. And the more unresolved jobs, tasks, thoughts we have, the more tense we become. And then when we tie them, tie them off so we've got it sussed, we know that's what that is, that's that done, don't have to think about it anymore, the tension goes. So we take a task and we complete a task. If we have too many open loops, it becomes very tense. And we come, so this is, um, he doesn't do that. Japanese armor, right? That must mean some, even at some level, because we've read many stories, we're thinking, ah, okay, that's going to play a part. But does it? The commandant, you know, there he is sitting in a corner, and they're just those oddities, aren't they? Because if you went into a bar in a normal situation, there's a bloke sitting in the darkness, you'd be like, what's going on? You know? And so these little kind of cosmetic oddities, really, because they don't really play. I mean, the commandant's a. He's he's a he's a caricature, isn't he, of of an old? He, something has happened to him. He was cashiered out of the army, and we never that's never resolved either. But he has he seems to rescue Frin. Anyway, let's go back to Frin. Frin is an ancient Greek name meaning toad, uh, and it's uh, when I looked her up, I see that uh, there was a Frin or Frine, um, and she was um, an ancient Greek prostitute who lived from thirty seven three thousand seventy one BC. And she originated in Thespia in Boeotia and lived and worked in Athens, where she rose to become one of the richest women in Greece. She had a trial for impiety, and it legend has it that she was exonerated after showing her breasts to the jury, though it is questionable whether this actually happened. So, our friend, weird name, eh? 
she's 25 years younger than Gerald and a lot shorter than him. We, we know those things. At some point during the dance, she becomes nearly naked and uh, Mrs. Pascoe looks at her, quote-unquote, pretty body. So there is definitely, and there is a, a kind of a, 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 a tame sexual encounter, isn't there? Which is, you know, quite tastefully done. But when, with Aikman, he's so clever, what you think might be taste is actually him unsettling you a little bit further. Um, so when we're in a four-poster, that is that significant. And so when we're looking for meaning, some of these things is we look, we do this dream analysis and we look for symbolism, and I, I certainly do that. But I wonder if that isn't just another attempt of our minds just to try and systemize or try and understand or try and put into a pocket. So, so we've got Don and we've got um, Fryn and we've got... And the other thing I would say is, um, and I don't want to spend too long because you could talk about this forever, is... The dead, we don't really see them. It's all in the dark. They are like dream figures, aren't they? What is that about? So it's, the, it's the, of course, if it was the 1st of November, it's the night of all souls, you know, so there is some resonance there. What The bells are to ring them up, and there's bells. The, the pub's called the bells, isn't it? And they ring the brass bell in the bar. So there's a, a, a theme of bells, and it's wakening, isn't it? I suppose the great, um, the trump at the end, whereby um, in Christian... Um, um, beliefs the dead will rise the physical dead will rise and that's the thing I think that modern Christians sometimes forget that the actual Christian doctrine is it's the physical resurrection of the body which is related to Jewish doctrine which is why um, um, most Jews want to be buried near the, the what is sort of the Mount of Olives and in that valley between the walls of Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives and if you ever go there which you should um, is there's thousands and thousands of tombs because when the Messiah comes that they will physically rise up um, so that that's that's something to do with this as well. I think it's a fascinating, unsettling story, and in some sense, so the day after, it's like after a storm, isn't it? And that you go around and the slates off the roof, and there's bits of broken things and trees over, um, and people are clearing up. So the milkman, bringing the sustenance of life, who knows? And the little boy who may be indigenous, and then the grave diggers who apparently who must be burying the dead reburying the dead and something has happened to Fryn which they never talk about there is a lot to this story if we want to get psychological um, and I can't claim to have plumbed it all so I've just had the flashing lights which is the signal here Sheila's got this signal about she flashes the lights to tell me to if I'm recording that I need to pay attention and I know it's time to take dogs out so I'll, I'll wrap up because it's a long story anyway um, I had a lovely day yesterday. I met uh, Gavin Critchley. So Gavin, you may know, is a patron of the show. And every now and again, he gives me money to do stories. So I'm going to do a Ted Hughes story um, sponsored by him. Um, and, and it allows me to be a bit more experimental. Pro probably Ted Hughes wouldn't be considered a classic ghost story writer. In fact, he's a poet. But um, it, it just allows me to perhaps give you something different as well. So we had a lovely... Um, Sun, sunshine came to Carlisle and we sat out and had a coffee in the grounds of Tully House, the museum there, amongst all the Roman bits. And it was a lovely, lovely day. And um, so it was nice to see him. Um, and then I and, and walked the dogs. We had an amble. So everything is well. And, yeah, we were talking about He had a, a sad reason for coming up. And um, we both reflected on, and I've been thinking about this anyway, when I look at the dogs, we, we overlook what is now. 
And there is so much now, as I'm sitting here, I'm still alive, and this is, this is here. And I don't, I think I can be too future orientated, always onto the next thing, the next thing, the next goal, the next recording, you know, how am I going to scale this, blah, 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 blah. What I'm going to do, I'm going to pack my job in, I'm going to go traveling, I'm going to blah, 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 blah. And then, you know, I think the importance is sometimes just to sit and go, this is, I told you I was a hippie. I'm going to be off for two weeks walking the ridgeway from Avebury, big stone circle, over the white horses in Oxford. No, it's not, it's in Wiltshire. And then um, to Wayland Smithy, another prehistoric monument. Picking up the earth energy, we're going to take two weeks, we're going to amble over it, Sheila and I, and um, absorb I hope it's sunny because if it's raining all the time, it won't be as much fun. Anyway, I hope you're well. That's probably all I've got time for now. Um, yeah, hope you were unsettled, but in a nice way. Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody dies, don't they? Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked drawer today. invite you to consider becoming a patron of the podcast. Patrons perform a really useful task for me in that they give me the wherewithal, the finance through their contributions to enable me to devote time to producing stories for you. So it's actually really helpful if you want to hear more stories. And um, there is a big, on Patreon, there is a big uh, backlog of stories, a big library of stories that you can access by becoming a patron you can download them as well which is more difficult on podcasts and on youtube but if you want to become a patron you get the double whammy of supporting my work which enables me to do more work imagine that you pay me to do more and i do more work for you and produce more stories for you which is and, and you know i appreciate it so you get my love and gratitude and also you get access to a big backlog of stories and members-only stories. Every month I do at least one members-only story. So it's kind of a really good thing to do. And I would just like to invite you to consider becoming a Patreon. It's hard to say links, but this is www.patreon.com forward slash barcud, B-A-R-C-U-D. That's me. See you there.